0: we're going to move on to the reading. Today we are reading Daniel 5. So if you have your Bible I would love for you to read along with me today. It's a bit of a long reading so it's good to follow along. All right. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in our kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom, like that of the gods. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind, knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams." Explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what this what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. "'Your majesty is the the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar "'sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. "'Because of the high position he gave him, "'all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. "'Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. "'Those he wanted to spare, he spared. "'Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. "'And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. "'But then his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride.' He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the... The the description. This is the inscription that was written Mene, Mene, Tekel Parisen." Here is what these words mean. Mene, the God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tikel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Meters and Parisians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the meter took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Alright, that's a bit loud. Might want to bring that down. I tend to get loud on my own. Um, so, just wanted to kind of say a couple of things before we get into the text today. Uh, today is actually our kind of four-year anniversary. Woo! Uh, man, you guys are super excited today. It's going to be a long sit for you guys. I've got a lot of pages here. Um. Well, I'm excited about that. I think it's really cool to kind of see that as like a, a crossing point of four years. I mean, when I think back, uh, sorry, my hair is getting a bit long, so this headphone, this microphone doesn't really fit anymore, need a haircut. Um, I'm excited about that because when I look back, I think, man, it's just crazy to think about how I never would have thought that things would have turned out the way they did. And I can tell you so many people that have come in and out of this service uh, in the last four years and few that have shared their heart with me about how God has used their time here to work in their life to uh, kind of empower them and to lead them in their walk with him. And that's been our vision Uh, Our vision for this service has always been to be a place where anybody can feel welcome, anybody can feel kind of that this is a home, uh, but particularly, we kind of make an extra focus that anybody can feel that really quickly. So if you're here for uh, just a couple weeks, or if you're here for a couple months, or a couple years, uh, because a lot of people, of course, in a student community like Freiburg are kind of maybe just here for a temporary amount of time, that we want people to be able to, to come, to be able to invest quickly, to connect quickly, which is why we're always pushing small groups and the welcome cards so that you can... It doesn't matter if you think, hey, I'm only here for a few months. Man, get connected. Get a part of the community and let God use your time here to help you and to mold you so that you can grow and be better to where God is sending you next. And that's something that we've always believed in. And I'm so just encouraged Uh, that we're crossing this kind of four years, um, and yeah, just being able to look back and see what all God's done, and be excited about what He's going to be doing in the next four years. So with that, before we kind of get into the text, I just want to just say just a quick prayer, if that's okay, uh, to just kind of thank God for what He's done. Lord, we thank You so much for Your idea to build this service, for Your idea uh, to plant this, and for Your Yeah, spirit that's been a part of it from the very beginning and helped it to grow. And all the people, Lord, that have been able to come and be a part of this service in the last four years to contribute uh, to what it is now. And yeah, Father, to just uh, be a part of seeing your kingdom grow here in Freiburg. And so, Lord, we thank you for all the lives that you've touched in ways that we can't even fathom, ways that we never know uh, fully. And maybe we'll never fully understand the 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 extent of but we know that you're at work we know that this is your idea and this is your plan and we thank you for all that you've done and lord we just surrender to you the future especially as more now more than ever the future seems so unclear we surrender the future of this service this church and its people into your hands in jesus name amen all right well i'm excited I hope that you guys are awake. I know it's like crazy times, but you know this is church, and uh, we don't know how long we're going to be able to meet together. So we should be excited to be here. We should be able to be be excited that we're able to come together. And uh, so I'm just I'm looking at you guys. I see you. I know a lot of times people don't realize that you know the pastor can actually we see you when you're looking at your phone, when you're kind of talking to each other. We I see all of that. I'm, I may not look like it, but let's be excited. You guys excited? Woo! Ah, thank you. And I I. I'm assuming you guys are yelling at home on watching this on YouTube as well. And uh, welcome for you guys. Glad that you could join us. So let's get into our text that Shauna just read, Daniel chapter 5. As uh, we've been going chapter by chapter, it's a lot of text. There's a lot of things here, but uh, you can't really break it up. It's hard to kind of mash that up because it's such a complete story. And uh, each of these chapters really uh, is trying to tell us something in particular And of course, this one is where we get the phrase, uh, the writing on the wall. Uh, It's a a phrase that we use in English anyway, uh, for pretty obvious reasons why it would have come from here. Um, And the phrase, of course, means like that something, it's a sign of something ominous, uh, usually in reference to a coming judgment, the writings on the wall, meaning, hey, something bad might be coming down the road. Be on the lookout, be paying attention. And so as we go through this text... We want to be paying attention to what this text is trying to tell us, and what I feel like what I want to get to by the end of this uh, message today is to show you that this kind of phrase, this uh, proverbial writing on the wall, is actually in the text, we see that it, it, it comes long before the writing of a physical disembodied hand writing on a wall, and he just wasn't paying attention. So we want to be paying attention. And as we go through, we're going to unpack some of the history around the text. I'll just kind of throw some things in because I think it's quite important and the chapter itself leaves out some pretty big pieces that would connect it with what we read last week in chapter 4 and the overall kind of narrative of what's going on here uh, but that's not really how Daniel that's not how the book of Daniel is written it's not it has some histor it's these historical kind of situations that took place but they're not really about the history Uh, Really, it's about how seeing God is in control. Sam talked about it last week. I've talked about it, I think, a little bit every week, and I'll probably continue with that because that's kind of what Daniel's trying to hammer into us, that God is in control. In fact, I feel like because there's such uh, a kind of removal of certain historical facts uh, that... Would have maybe maybe because they were known, or but for some reason Daniel doesn't put them in the text. It kind of shows us that it's just to kind of point out that's not what this is about. It's not about the history of the last king of Babylon. It's about something much more. And as we've mentioned several times, the the book of Daniel isn't really about Daniel himself or any of the characters on the pages, but about God and his sovereignty, that God is in control. Ultimately, that God has authority over all things, and He is in charge and reigning behind everything. We, we see His providence at work in every situation, from the rising and falling of empires and mighty kings to exiles like Daniel. It is God who puts them in their place. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw last week, and as the text kind of makes this comparison, Nebuchadnezzar, he began, he saw this at, at a point in his life. He saw that God is in control, but Belshazzar doesn't ever seem to get that. Quick history note uh, before we go any further: uh, the text calls uh, Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father. Um, that's highly unlikely that he would have been his actual father, like his dad, so to say. It was, uh, and in the Old Testament, uh, we see the word "father" can mean father, but it can also mean it could be referencing him as a predecessor, as in he was a former king. Uh, we see that often uh, when we read through Chronicles and Kings. They talk about David, my father, even though it's not literally his father. Uh, but it can also mean an ancestor, meaning a grandfather, a great-grandfather, etc. And between chapters 4 and 5, there's actually been several kings uh, that I'm not going to talk about uh, today, mostly because their names are ridiculously hard to pronounce You can look it up for yourself. And it's not in the text at all. So, you know, we're just going to focus on what the Bible says. Um, But I do think it's important to notice that there was several kings in between. Most of them very short-lived, ending in in various ways. One was beaten to death. And uh, most of them, though, I think the max was four years, if I remember reading right. Uh, But most of them very, very short terms. And Belshazzar right now is not actually king. Uh, this was a big debate uh, amongst historians for a long time. I'm not going to get into that either, but uh, because you know we know that he Belshazzar isn't mentioned as the last king. But later, there was actually not so long ago, there was uh, some discoveries made uh, that show that Belshazzar's father was the king, but he shared the reign with Belshazzar, and kind of Belshazzar was kind of put over the city of Babylon, whereas his father was kind of over the larger area, and at this point was probably away somewhere uh, outside of the city for whatever reason. Uh, So it's likely, though, that Nebuchadnezzar might have been Belshazzar's grandfather on his mother's side because his father had married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. But it's a bit unclear exactly. So just to kind of put that to you guys, for you guys who are just really interested in history, I find it really fascinating, but trying to not get too deep into that. So the text opens with this banquet. We see the chapter open with this party. He's having this massive party. It's a thousand of the kind of who's who, if you will, of all the nobles. He's got all of his wives, his concubines, all the important people, all the cool people, the guys who like to party well, I guess, I don't know. And he's throwing this big party. And in the original text, it really, there's an implication. We don't see in the NIV, Um, I tend to lean towards the ESV myself, uh, but the NIV doesn't really, I feel like, paint it as, as well. Uh, that he, He's really doing this. He's kind of drinking. It shows that he's drinking in front of everybody. He's kind of making a point to, I don't know, maybe show how, how much he can drink. But he's, he's really trying to make a, a, a statement. And this kind of whole event is a bit of a spectacle. And it's to show power. It's to show authority. It's to show a fearlessness. And if you just read the text and you don't know any of the history, you might say, well, what's the big deal? He's having a party. What kind of, I mean, okay, what's the big statement there? Then we have to jump back again to a little bit of what's going on historically as this is happening. Because the city is under siege. And that immediately just kind of changes the way you think about this party. The, right outside of the city, there's, army, there's an army trying to break down the walls, trying to get into the city. And so we see this, in that light, we see that this party isn't just a party, it's kind of a a spectacle of arrogance and pride and, and foolishness. And Belshazzar is kind of demonstrating his complete lack of fear because he trusts more in the city of Babylon's strength, and his fearlessness, we'll see, proves to be foolishness. Trusting in the wrong things. The city of Babylon, though, we have to say, was pretty famously uh, thought to be completely impenetrable. And at the time, it was definitely a wonder. The walls were so broad, they say four chariots could be on top of the walls, riding next to each other, because it was so, the walls were so thick. It was 27 kilometers around, 7 meters thick, which is very thick. 30 meters high which is very high if you didn't know. And it had gates of bronze and in these gate these various gates there was all these systems of moats and inner and outer gates it was very difficult to get in. I mean they didn't have bombs and or like drones or whatever. So they like with the technology at the time it was pretty much impossible to break down these walls. And it was very well supplied, famously so. In fact, uh, it was said that for years they they could go run on just their supplies they had without having to worry about food, which is what he's trying to demonstrate. Like, not only are we not worried about running out of food, we're going to eat in excess. We're going to have a big party. And a river ran through the city so they had an unlimited supply of water. So even though at this time... The city is under siege. The outer provinces of Babylon have mostly fallen at this time. Probably his father was away fighting. Maybe he had already been killed. We don't know. Uh, But anyway, his father's not there. And the outer areas have been taken mostly. But the city remains firm. And he's so confident, so completely confident, that there's no way anybody could breach the city that he's throwing a party. Instead of doubling down on the guards, instead of making sure everything is secure, preparing for potential battle, he's throwing a party. And his misplaced trust would have been bad enough. His trust in the work of man's hands, in man's abilities, and the gods of material things, as he's going to worship here in a moment. But he decides to take it a step further. And to actively mock the true God by bringing in these golden goblets that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. These were, of course, taken when Nebuchadnezzar had sacked the city of Jerusalem and the temple uh, years before. But he had kept them uh, in his temple there, where he had kept basically trophies of various gods from other nations that he had conquered. And these items in themselves, of course, are just material things. It's just gold. It's just metal. The very definition, of course, of holy, because making these things holy is, means to be set apart. And it's because of what they were used for that made them holy, that they were used for the temple. If you melt the gold down and use it for something else, the gold isn't what was valuable. It's not miraculous. It's not special. But they were representing something connected with God. And he was worshiping the materials. He was worshiping the materials themselves. He's worshiping the gods of of gold and silver and stone, trusting in material things. Of course, the fact that the material themselves isn't what makes it holy does not diminish Belshazzar's actions of open rebellion and mocking God. Because of what these items represented and who they were connected with. They were connected with the one true holy God. And now maybe he was attempting to encourage his men. That's a possibility. Again, he was trying to make a statement saying, hey, not only are we willing to throw a party, but we can even, you know, mock the gods of, of other peoples that we've already conquered in the past. Remember that city, Jerusalem? We conquered them with no problems. Their God didn't do anything. Let's bring in there those special items Remember, the battles we won will be okay here today, too. He has such confidence in these material things. I believe he was also in a drunken stupor at this point, and he let his guard down. Things that he never would have dared to do in sober light. I don't think he would have risked offending a god. He allowed himself to indulge in because of his drunkenness. Drunkenness often loosens us up enough that, we, that the true nature of our sinful hearts is kind of set free to come out. Alcohol, especially in drunkenness, can be such a dangerous thing to open us up to greater sins we would never do in our sober mind. And Belshazzar had heard about God. Definitely he had heard about God. Growing up, he probably had seen these items on display. Maybe he had heard about—I'm sure he had heard the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar and had heard about what these represented and the gods that they were connected. The god that they were connected with. Nebuchadnezzar himself never dared to defile them, and now, in his drunkenness, his arrogance and pride are set free. Maybe he's thinking, "I'll show you what I think of that god." Now we can guess that this might be a part of what was going on in his mind and in his heart by the change of tone when the writing on the wall begins. So he changed his demeanor pretty quickly. In fact, he's so incredibly filled with fear that even though he doesn't even, though he doesn't even know what the writing means, there's something else going on that's putting fear into like the very core of his being. It shows us that he was aware. He became very aware of his sin. He became very aware of what, that what he was doing was probably wrong. It was wicked. And he became aware of that when he was brought into an encounter with God through the writing on the wall. His sinful heart shines through. He was sobered up pretty quickly when he saw that hand. And in the light of a sober mind, he is afraid. Galatians 6, 7 through 8, I think, echoes into this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. We cannot live for ourselves. We cannot live in sin continuously and not expect to eventually reap what we have sown, what we've laid into the ground. Now, surely Belshazzar has spent many years sowing his arrogance and pride. I don't think this was just something that came up today. But here in this text, we see this kind of instant reaction, this instant karma, if you will, of his drunkenness and his arrogance and pride and his open rebellion against God, his mocking God, having a direct action, or sorry, reaction from God as the hand, this disembodied hand begins to write on the wall. Let's read through that encounter in verse 5 and 6. Uh, sorry. suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. So just, that's obviously to show us that it was in a place where everybody could see it. Everyone could clearly see what was going on. It was right by the light source. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became, became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, I think we can all agree that seeing a disembodied hand writing on the wall would strike some level of fear in anybody. It's a shocking thing to see. But as I mentioned, I think his terror doesn't say everybody felt that, he felt it. The, he felt this terror. His terror was deep because he knew this was judgment. He knew it was judgment. He didn't know what it was, but he knew it was judgment. I mean, he didn't know what it said. You know, you can kind of think he worshipped all of the, these gods of, of the, the Babylonian gods. Maybe one of them was the ones that he was worshipping was writing on the wall, telling him what a good job he's doing. That could have been. He didn't know what it meant. I mean, I think they did. The text is a bit ambiguous here, but I think they knew what the words actually said, Uh Those are Aramaic words. I think they knew what they said. They just didn't know what it meant. And it could have been, he could have interpreted it to be good news from one of a different God. But he didn't think that. I don't think that thought ever even popped in his head for a second, because there was, there's only one true God. There is only one true God. Everything else is fabricated. It's idols. It's lifeless objects. And those don't strike fear in your heart. They don't do anything. To you, They have no impact on your life except what you yourself allow them to have. He was struck with fear because he was encountering God. He was struck with fear because he was encountering God. But he has no change of heart. He has no change of heart, as we saw with Nebuchadnezzar last week in his testimony, chapter 4. It's a reminder that physical Outward, bodily expressions or reactions do not necessarily mean it's a work of the Spirit. As is often thought, especially nowadays I feel like, just because someone is crying or shaking or crying out to God, those don't necessarily mean that it's a work of the Spirit. It doesn't mean they're having, that they have a changed heart. And we see that here with him. He's reacting, but his heart isn't changed. Those, of course, can be associated with a changed heart. The work of the Spirit can lead us to weeping or crying out to God. But they are not the evidence of a changed heart. The reality is when anybody encounters the presence of God, When anybody encounters the presence of God, it is going to affect them because we are creations. And when we come into contact with our Creator, it will physically affect us. But the work of the Spirit does not only bring an outward expression, but an inward change. And that we see over time, especially. So in his frantic fear, he's crying out. His legs are shaking so much that he can barely stand. He still does not seek God or become aware of God's greatness as Nebuchadnezzar did as he looked up after his humbling. Or even ask about someone like Daniel. What does he do? He runs to the world to see what the world will offer him as an answer to his bewilderment, to his fear he encountered God. He ran to the world. He goes. He has all of the wise men, every, all the enchanters and wizards and whatever you want to call them. All the different translations call them different things I find. We'll call them wizards. I like that. So he calls them all in and they're trying to tell him what it means. And he offers them even a great reward. Of course, they have no clue. They have no clue what it means. And Belshazzar had put all of his trust in in the world. He trusted in the security of the city. There was no way the city would ever fail. He trusted it completely. He trusted in the wealth, in the security that he had built up around him. And now he trusts in the wisdom the world promises to offer, that it has the answers to the things that uh, that we experience. It has the answers to the things that we struggle with, to our fears, to our doubts, to our struggles. And these things, when we trust in these things, it blinds us to what's outside the walls. It blinds us to the real enemy. What is he doing? He's throwing a party. He's blinded by first by his ignorance, then he's blinded by his fear. But he's never paying attention. All this time, there's still an army right outside the door, and he never even addresses it. It blinds us to our real enemy, right? And we don't fight against flesh and blood, right? There's an enemy out there that's trying to destroy us. And its best tool is to get us distracted. Trusting in the wrong things or fearing the wrong things. Why do we go again and again to the world, to the creation, when the Creator Himself has given us an entire book to lead us, to guide us, to give us answers to help us to know him better so that when we understand him we know that there is nothing in this world to fear. I will fear the Lord and him alone and I will put my trust in him alone. Now just when we kind of feel like the story can't really move forward anymore we see a new character enter the scene the queen and I think we could call her the queen mother Uh, because it says that all of his wives were there, so it wasn't one of his wives. Uh, She's kind of, and the fact that she gets this special title as queen shows that she had something a little bit unique about her, needed to be set apart. Uh, Most likely was Belshazzar's, um, sorry, this could be the mother of Belshazzar, or maybe a grandmother, it's really, uh, we're not really exactly sure but certainly somebody older, somebody who had clearly more wisdom. We can see that right away in the way that she talks and the way that she understood things from the past. And one person in particular that stood clearly in her mind was Daniel. And if she had been around long enough, she would have definitely been there to know and see the way that Daniel uh, interacted with Nebuchadnezzar years before. And she says a few things about him. She says that, hey, there's a man in your kingdom... Who has the spirit of the holy gods. And that doesn't mean like the holy God. It just means that he has something special. He, he clearly has some connection with something beyond us. And your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is also her words, appointed him chief and chief over everybody. And she's kind of like saying, uh, you know, maybe you should pay attention to that. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, he saw something special in him. Uh, maybe that might be, he might be noteworthy. And then in verse 12, I'll read through, uh, he, he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, and this is also interesting that she calls him by his Hebrew name, kind of uh, elevating him, not giving him his kind of slave name, if you will, but his true identity as a Hebrew, uh, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. You kind of feel like she's saying, like, "Uh, hello, call Daniel, call for Daniel." You know, he's the one who's done all this before. And then she kind of says this powerful, almost faith-driven word, and he will, and he will tell you what the writing means. She's seen Daniel at work. That's the impression I get. And she's like, I, "He's going to be able to do this." And there's this almost condescending feel, you know, like a mom talking to a rebellious child. Uh, Like, you know, surely you've heard of Daniel, you know, the one who interpreted all those dreams, you know, like those two massively important dreams in King Nebuchadnezzar's life that I'm sure at this point everyone would have heard of. You know, he's still around. He still works for us. (laughs) Why don't you call him, you dope? I added the dope part, but... That's the feeling you get. She's kind of like, you know, uh, he interprets these things, you've got to, why are you calling on these people? Why are you calling on the world when we have somebody here who we know is connected with God? Daniel finally is brought before the king. We see this contrast from the way the queen talks about him. And she's, she knows that Daniel has something special, knows, sees the kind of the spirit of God in him. Something that as as i've said throughout this series that when we look at everything that uh, that daniel does and says that that's i want to be like daniel i want to be somebody that people see the spirit of god in me and i would hope that for all of you here that we would be people that when people encounter us when they experience uh, anything any interactions with us that they would see the spirit of god in us as the queen clearly saw with daniel belshazzar not so much his, his, uh, we see this immediately. He, the king kind of, he seems skeptical, but he also shows his pride. His pride in himself as he immediately, uh, from the beginning when he addresses Daniel. He says, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? So there's two things he's kind of pointing out. One, you're an exile. You're a foreigner. You were brought here against your will, like, you know, kind of devaluing him already. And then he takes it a step further and kind of says that my father brought. So he's kind of saying that was years ago you're old you're old and you're in exile like that's you you're the guy that i'm supposed to ask so he doesn't have much faith in what daniel can do for him and he says in verse 14 i have heard now when he says i've heard we don't know it could be that i think he probably had heard of daniel at some point in his life growing up uh, hearing the stories of nebuchadnezzar i think that would have been a pretty prominent part of the telling of those stories Uh, but maybe he didn't maybe just forgot it didn't really pay much attention in school whatever and he's just heard it from his mother or the queen mother, whatever role she was having in his life. Maybe he just heard it from her. We don't know. But either way, he doesn't have any act of faith. He doesn't have any, any kind of belief in what Daniel has to offer or the God that he's connected with. This is a last resort. It reminds us that when we trust in the world, in money, in the stability of this world, and everything that it offers, and then it fails us, as it often does, anybody who's lived long enough can tell you. Money runs out. We lose jobs. The world doesn't offer the answers we want. And sometimes even those who don't know God, don't have a relationship with Him, will, will kind of cry out in a, in a moment of fear, of doubt, of, of kind of desperation. And God kind of comes in as this last resort. Like, if you're really there, those kind of prayers and we see here with Belshazzar, it's not out of hope, it's not out of out of faith, but almost in a, in a mocking tone. He's just continuing to mock God, even as he seeks him, in a way. He's not seeking him out of faith. And Daniel answers the king, and Daniel's response is pretty harsh. We don't have time to go all the way through it, but he holds off the pleasantries of a, a, proper, a proper address of a king, and he kind of feels the disdain, I think. I mean, he's an older, wise man at this point. He's not really, uh, doesn't feel like making nice. He tells him to keep your gifts. I don't need your gifts. I don't need your stuff. Obviously, he knows what the interpretation is going to be. And so Belshazzar doesn't really have much to offer soon. But here's what I find interesting is in Daniel's response, why doesn't he just go and say, okay, those are the words, this is what it means. He brings in Nebuchadnezzar and goes through this whole kind of comparison. And I think that we have to note that because I, I think that's the whole point of this chapter is to make that comparison. I mean, if you, have to, you have to kind of keep in mind, we're, re- we're doing this week to week, but if you read through the book of Daniel, you just read this m- powerful testimony of this kind of godlike king of Nebuchadnezzar who's humbled down low and then looks up and sees God and acknowledges him as sovereign Lord. This m- amazing testimony, and then we immediately go into Belshazzar. The, the book is forcing us to make this comparison, and then it's even brought into this chapter to compare the two. It's kind of forced. So we have these two men of great authority. Both encounter God. Both are humbled. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, forced to live like an animal for seven years. Belshazzar is shaking like a child in front of all of his friends. That must have been a bit humbling at least. And let's look at some of the key elements that Daniel unpacks in this comparison. We won't, again, we won't go through all of it, but in verse 18, he says, Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. I just feel like that's just an immediate, like, ow, oof, that's, that's, ouch. Like, like, let me, before I tell you anything about what this says and the judgment it's going to mean for you, let me just talk about how great this guy was long before you. And I have to, I have to think that every, all the kings, again, this is like, I think the fifth king, again, he's kind of co-king with his father, but um, all of them must have really, lived in the shadow of Nebuchadnezzar. There was never, and some would argue maybe never has been again, a king like Nebuchadnezzar who had complete and absolute authority. And it says that because he was in this high position, uh, the nations trembled at him. He killed who he wanted to kill. He saved who he wanted to save. He lifted up. He humbled. Whatever he wanted to do, he could do. He had ultimate, complete power, not like any other king after him. I mean, literally, we saw in chapter 2, he wakes up in the middle of the night with a bad dream, doesn't like the answer he gets, and he's like, kill everybody. Done. And they're like, all right, let's go do it. Like, he, there was no questioning. He didn't have to go to a council or whatever. He had absolute power. And he's pointing that out to him. Daniel's drawing his attention to the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar, but he's also showing that it was God who gave it to him. It was God who gave him that authority. He's saying, you think you're great, throwing your party, demonstrating your power, showing how much liquor you can drink. But even your ancestor Nebuchadnezzar, who was, let's be honest, a hundred times the man you'll ever be, only had his authority because it was given to him by God. And even he was not above being humbled by God. You know this. And last week, again, we, we went through Nebuchadnezzar's testimony and a great, mighty testimony it is. And then here we have the first, the real writing on the wall. The real writing on the wall in verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. You have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this. Though you knew all this. Those words hit me hard. You knew. The real writing on the wall came long before the appearance of that hand. The real writing came through seeing his possibly grandfather, seeing Nebuchadnezzar, hearing the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is saying, you know what you're doing. You know that this is wrong. You know who that God is that you're defiling. You know who that God is you're mocking. It's the same God that Nebuchadnezzar, who was greater than you, worshipped by the end of his days. Did you think that you could simply mock him? Did you think you could simply mock God? In verse 23, it says, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've set yourself up against him, especially, he points out, in taking these goblets. You're mocking him. You've set yourself up against him. You think that was going to be okay? You think that was just going to work out good for you in the end? If Nebuchadnezzar, who was, again, a greater man than you, acknowledged him as God, did you think That God would suffer your arrogance? Did you think God would suffer your arrogance? You know what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. You've heard of his dreams. Nebuchadnezzar knew it was God who had lifted him up to a great position. It was God who gave him the power and authority that he had. And it was God who humbled him and brought him low so that he would have the right perspective. So that ultimately he would come to that converting, understanding truth where he looked up. And saw that it was God who reigns above all things. And Belshazzar knows this. He knows this story. He's, if we read it last week, we can be positive that he had heard it. Probably many, many, many times, if you have a family where people like to tell stories. I mean, I've heard some stories about my grandparents, so they were never as exciting as that. I'm sure he grew up hearing those stories. I mean, it's, you know, when a king lives like an animal for seven years, that's hard to hide. I'm sure he knew the story, and he knew it was the God of Israel. If he had received this truth and taken it to heart, he would have not have defiled what God had made righteous so frivolously. Blatantly mocking God. He didn't heed the instruction of the testimony of the greatest, most powerful known ruler in his day who had learned from his experience that God is in control of all things. Because he didn't heed this but rejected it, he in turn is rejecting God as sovereign. Verse 23, it goes on. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. In some translations, your breath, which I like better. the God who holds your very breath in his hand. We are without excuse. That's what this means. We are without excuse. God reveals his truth through his word, first and foremost, and therefore there's no one in this room that can stand before God and say, I didn't know. I didn't know that Jesus was the only way. I know that we preach that here. I know we teach it. I know that the word of God says it again and again. We are without excuse. And Paul takes it even further, removing all opposition or option, rather, for excuse. In Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Don't miss the writing on the wall. And don't wait until a severed hand has to physically appear and write out your judgment in front of you. Be aware. Think about it like this. Every breath you take is a gift from God. Every breath you take is a gift from Him. Even if you use that breath to curse God, to curse Him to His face, to curse God's name, it is only because God has allowed you the gift of that breath to do so. Heed the warnings of His Word, of those who preach and teach His truth, and look at the intricacies of this world. That we live in and know that's not by accident, but by design through purposeful directing of a creator. We are without excuse. You can be like Belshazzar and, and trust in man, in the creation of man, creations of man and the wisdom of man, but it will not save you. And you'll find yourself confronted with a real truth that strike should strike fear into your heart when you are confronted with it and that is is the bible true is the word of god true yes or no because if it is true and it is absolute truth as it claims to be it should change the way you live your life it should change the way you understand reality it should change the way you see god the way you see yourself and the way you see others is the bible true I, read, I found this quote I'll read. I feel like puts it in a good light. If God held Belshazzar responsible, if he held him responsible, my friend, for the ray of light which shone across his path, what will he say to men living in the blaze of light which illuminates the world today? What does that mean? It means If he was held responsible because he had heard about what God had done for Nebuchadnezzar, how much more us today when we have an entire Bible filled with his truth? Belshazzar's greatest sin was to be unteachable from the truth he could have gained by watching God's grace at work in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. As a philosopher once said, the only thing we learn from history is that we have learned nothing from history. How true that is, maybe today more than ever. Don't make that mistake. Let's get to the interpretation. I know it's late, but I feel like we don't have really hang out after service, so you guys can just, you know, stay a bit later, right? Yeah! I told you guys to be excited. It'll get you through, keep you awake. So, ending on the interpretation, Mina Tekel Perez means numbered, weighed, divided. I want to just say that when we hear numbered, we have two two ways. We can see Belshazzar's approach, his response, which is fear, which is a right response, and those who know the truth of God's grace who belong to Christ today and what it means for us. Your days have always been numbered. Every single one of us, down, the Bible says that our, the hairs of our head are numbered. The days of our lives have been numbered by our creator. Whether we accept that as true or not, it remains true. God knows the days of your life down to the minute, down to the second. And if you, have, if you seek relationship with God, this will be a great comfort to you That he knows you. He's with you every single day. He knows everything you're going to experience. He's with you all the days of your life. But if you live in rebellion against God, this should and will strike fear into your heart. Weighed. This, to me, is one of the most heavy words. Pun intended a bit. Weighed. You have been tested and weighed and found wanting. I cannot... Imagine a more fearful thing to hear. There is a scale that we are all judged on. And for those who do not know Christ, it means you will be judged based off of your actions, your thoughts, how you spent your days. And the Bible says that you will not match up. All fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is none who are good all who are weighed will be found wanting for those of us who have been brought bought rather bought by the blood of Christ and belong to him and have relationship with him and call him lord and savior the scale has been reset and our debt has been paid in full by the blood of Christ finally we have divided now this is his judgment The judgment is that the kingdom is going to end. It's going to be divided. The Medes and Persians will be taking over soon. And the wages of sin is death. And for those who reject God, the penalty is division between you and God and the goodness of God and the love of God and the peace of God for eternity. But Romans 8, 1 tells us, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we are in Christ, our debt is paid, and we are no longer condemned. And we seek to live a righteous life. We seek to do right by him because we seek him. We seek Christ himself, and he is righteousness. Belshazzar still did not believe, did not receive this truth. Even though Daniel had refused, he gives him the reward anyway. Again, you feel this sense of mocking. Yeah, give him his coat, give him his purple robes, his Gold and his role as third in command, which of course was the highest that he would have been able to offer anyway. But that very night the city was taken. I won't get into the history of it, even though I have all these notes here, because it's very interesting. But basically, it was an incredible tact by the enemy to how they took the city. They diverted the rivers so that the water level was lowered enough that they could walk under these giant bars that had been put down into the, the river so that nobody could march through. And because it was thought to be impossible, nobody was even watching as he marched his army through. But they still had to get through the gates. And this is where I do want to note. Uh, they had to get through these uh, bronze gates. And history tells us that the gates weren't even locked. They weren't even locked because they thought there was no way anybody could get through the walls. So the inner city gates weren't even closed and this is interesting because in isaiah 45 1 through 7 which i won't read um, you can read it later and also in jeremiah he talks about this but god predicted the fall of babylon and he even talks about the gates being unlocked and and even mentions the river and the tact that they would use 200 years before this happened i just point that out because as i've said the book of Daniel is a book of prophecy, both a future prophecy and also fulfilled prophecy. Everything is very strategic in this book. We could unpack it, I think, for weeks. But I'll start to close now. Sorry. I want to just kind of uh, draw your attention to, I think, a comparison in, with, in Luke 12, 19-20. We see Belshazzar as Jesus depicts the rich fool And he is talking about, this is a a parable where the, the rich man has just, he's got so much, he's got so many things, he's going to build more barns. And then he says in verse 19, And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Belshazzar trusted in all of the things that had been gained, all of the things that had been stored up in the possessions to the very end. And it was to his death. What do you trust in? What do you trust in? The reality is that for each and every one of us, it could be this very night that our life is required of us. Don't wait. See the writing on the wall. Store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Have confidence in the creator, not in creation. Our days are numbered. We will be weighed on the scale. And my hope for each and everyone here today is that when you are weighed on the scale, you are not found wanting because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because you have been adopted as son and daughter of the Most High. Do not live in arrogance or pride, but humble yourself completely, trusting in Jesus Christ as your all in all. I'll invite the band to come up as we close. Stand firm in this truth, especially in these trying times we live in today of uncertainty. Don't be blind to what's going on in the world. It's crazy out there. We have an enemy. Don't be blind to it. Keep your eyes open, but also focused on Christ, trusting in him, humbling yourself before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we see the example of Daniel as this righteous man who year after year in his life is faithful, as so we'll see next week especially, or week after next, that he is continually faithful to you. But we thank you for also for these examples of the wrong way, the wrong things to trust in. Belshazzar reminds us that trusting in the world, trusting in the possessions, trusting in in the wisdom of the world doesn't satisfy. It It doesn't offer us what we're looking for. We need you. He had the truth right in front of him, but he refused to accept it. Help us, Father, to see the writing on the wall in our lives. Help us to know you, to seek you first and to humble ourselves before you and put our trust in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.